Welcome to Brains, a podcast exploring the inner workings of our brains, mental health and disabilities, and how film and television portray them. Hosted by me, film and television editor Sarah Taylor. And by me, writer-director Heather Taylor. Before we begin, we want to acknowledge the lands from which we recorded this podcast and from where you were listening are part of territories that have long served as a gathering place for diverse Indigenous peoples. And we are thankful, as guests on this land, to be able to live, work, and gather here together. We continue to learn about the history that came before us and encourage you to do the same. We all know that October is spooky month. Spooky. (laughs) So we have two episodes that touch on all things spooky and the impact they have on our brains. Today, we have the fabulous Guinevere Turner as our guest. She's the screenwriter of films like American Psycho and Charlie Says, and she has recently published When the World Didn't End, a book about her experience growing up in a cult. On this episode, we do a deep, deep dive into the representation of cults in film and TV and look at what filmmakers get right and what they get wrong. We also discuss the characteristics of a cult, who is susceptible to them, the impact cults can have on one's mental health, and how to help family and friends who may find themselves deeply entwined in a cult community. Lastly, we talk about why it's hard to find the right therapist if you are a cult survivor and why the world is so obsessed with cult stories. This is a really good one. A quick reminder to our listeners that this interview should not be taken as medical advice, and it is for informational purposes only. Because everyone's brain is different, please consult your healthcare professional if you have any questions. A content warning for our listeners, on this episode we talk about cults, coercion, and mass suicide. And now, Guinevere. Guinevere, thank you so much for joining us today on Brains. Thank you for having me. I've had an absolute pleasure listening to your book over the last few weeks. Um, so I feel like I know you really well because I've been listening <laughs> to you as I walk my dog. And also just you were like really familiar with the sound of my voice, which is kind yes. of surreal. <laughs> it really is. But I'm really happy that you're here to talk with us today. And so to start things off, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. I'm Guinevere Turner. I guess my primary profession is screenwriter. Uh, I'm also an actor and I teach screenwriting. I'm about to start a semester as a visiting artist at Syracuse University. Uh, I've taught at NYU and Columbia and UCLA. And I just wrote a book, which is a first for me, and recorded the audio, as you know, from what Sarah just said. And then got hired to record another audio book that has nothing to do with me. And I'm like, is this my new sexy career? So <laughs> tell us a little bit more about your memoir, When the World Didn't End. So When the World Didn't End, which just came out in May, um, is about my childhood growing up in a cult until I was 11, or as I would have told you at the time, 11 and a half. <laughs> if you read the book, you'll see why I really, it's like when I say 11, it like I go through a lot by the time I'm the age that I leave the cult. Yeah. I'm, I'm a very grown up kid. And then the second half of the book is kind of the, you know, getting out into the real world the um, hideous situation that I found myself in, which ironically is way worse than the cult. That's just true, but I kind of enjoyed that like, oh, you you came here to read a creepy book about a cult? Guess what? A nuclear family can be way creepier than a cult. And so it's my journey uh, through that, getting out of that. And, um, you know, it ends when I'm 18. I don't want to spoil the ending, but I don't die because here I am talking. (laughs) (laughs) And thank goodness for that. We'd love to know, from your perspective, what is a cult? 
as I've been thinking about this book, writing it, and now, you know, talking about it a lot, I started to realize that I'm not entirely comfortable calling the place I grew up in a cult, uh, which is ridiculous. It literally, if there was a checklist, if there was a cult for dummies, like it would be like, ding, ding, check, check, check. But what I can't have come to recently is that the problem with the word cult is that you're in danger when you're calling a group of people something that they wouldn't call themselves. Mm. There's no such thing as a cult that calls themselves a cult. Some people aren't even comfortable with the word who've been in them and they, you know, call them high demand groups or situations of coercive control. The difference is, I guess, with cults is the level of control. There's a, there are several people who come up with kind of smart uh, checklists. And one of them is if you left this group of people that you may or may not think is a cult, would the rest of your life fall apart? Has it become everything? And I think that that just that really basic one is a, is a great tool for people to think about. Um, because, you know, a, a, a very common cult tactic is to slowly isolate you from friends and family to, to keep you so busy and working toward some goal that it, you know, becomes completely time consuming and it often involves, you know, free labor and involves a kind of loss of self. Right. So, it, but the thing is, soul cycle. This is yes. one, you know, that's a common thing that people get super into. Is that a cult? I don't know. Cause then you go get a green juice and go to your next, you know, <laughs> whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like that to me is like, uh, you know, really good branding and marketing. Yeah. <laughs> obsessive too. People get obsessive. Yeah. <laughs> and and it, it encourages obsessiveness. And, and so there's it's culty, culty vibes. But um, to me, when you think about the great harm that so many cults have done, I sort of balk at calling Soul Cycle a cult. Yeah, not the least of which is because it costs a lot of money. So you're you're just you're just doing okay if you're going to Soul Cycle. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> they're taking all your money, or they're not tithing you to the point where you can't afford anything but the clothes on your back. Yeah, exactly. What are some other warning signs that you may be in a cult? Not cultish behavior, but like a literal organization that outsiders would call a cult first on the list of indoctrination is love bombing. So if you were invited into a group of people that suddenly, you know, you felt seen and you felt like you had a new community and a new group of friends, and all of a sudden it's dangerous on your, on the outs and you're tr- struggling to get the attention of the leader or people higher up, that is just, again, cult 101. If you got drawn into something out of love and attention and, you know, being starved for affection and, and now it feels like you're working just really hard and you can't seem to get ahead and it's your life. That's, that's a cult. And, and also I would say to people, there's a whole population of cult people like me who are born into it, but for people who might think they were, they are in one or they have been in one, I would say that, you know, these kinds of people, these kinds of this particular kind of coercion really targets vulnerable people, which is to say, have you recently had a breakup, a death in the family, some radical life change, or are you just a person in general who is, you know, what they call a seeker? And if any of those things are true, you're already vulnerable. And I heard a really smart woman, I think it was in a documentary, say, well, I could never be sucked into a cult. You're also one of the top five kinds of people who can, because you think you're you're, um, immune a really important thing I think for everybody when they think about cults and people who get sucked into them is that it's you know it's like domestic violence it's it transcends class 
race and region, like all kinds of people get sucked into all kinds of things that they have a heart, they have to swim out of with all their might or to save their lives sometimes. Because I've been interested in understanding cults and why how people end up in cults, I've been listening to a lot of cult content. And I've realized we're often very judgmental of people who we've heard are from a cult or lived in a cult. And some of the things you've mentioned in other interviews where it's like, we have to remember that these are people, mm. that they're, they're people in these places. And yet it can happen to anybody. And so I've definitely shifted my perspective on how I view people who have lived in a cult. And I think some of that comes from what we've seen on film and television. So I'd love to hear from you what kind of shows do you find that the representation that's somewhat accurate to your experience and um, what you would like to see more of that better represents the experience of living in a cult? I think one of the hallmarks of the the kind of sensational, like, ooh, it's going to be a cult thing, is that they feel the need to have, like, human sacrifice or... Mm something like so, so undeniably bad and scary. And that's not what's generally going on. When I see those kinds of things, like spoiler alert, Midsummer, for example. I mean, I just love Florence Pugh. So I watched the whole thing, even though I was a little like, this is dumb slash I am grossed out. (laughs) Uh, Midsummer, that could have been a movie where it's just creepy. Mm. And that... Like just just living like that in an isolated community with like rules and a lot of like eye contact and odd rituals, that's enough yeah. for me. Do you know what I mean? And that's way closer to reality. But when you watch a movie like that, and so many stories are like that, it it is this like automatic way of marginalizing. A, like a being like that's not real. Either like no cults are real, but that that was a fun ride. Or all cults are secretly hum- doing human sacrifice. Yeah. The movie Martha Marcy May Marlene, I think, does a really good job, especially of representing the just being out and figuring out and, and just kind of being drawn back in and what sort of not being sure if you made the right choice. I think that does a really great job of it and doesn't doesn't lean too heavily on sensational stuff, although upon I was like, hmm, I may have forgotten a couple of the more brutal scenes. But at least it's not like secret rituals. You know what I mean? It's just like sort of standard kind of dominance gaslighting. You know, that mm-hmm. feels that feels way more grounded and what what people are capable of and what people are capable of in families. I can't underline this enough. It's that cults are just like an abusive family, you know, on steroids. The dynamics are the same. The control tactics are the same. Anyone who's been in an abusive relationship can recognize that slowly people are going to say that friend isn't good for you. That friend isn't good for you. You know, like your parents were kind of shitty to you. Maybe you shouldn't talk to them. And all of a sudden you're completely isolated while this person is saying, I love you. I see you. I'm the only one who sees Mm. you. And okay. And then you're like, oh, wow, now I have nothing. And this person is my life. That's how cults work just on a larger scale. What I saw in this movie recently that I hadn't heard of uh, called Them That Follow, which is about the part of Pentecostal uh, religion that use snakes as a way, like poisonous snakes that hold the snake. And if you, if you have God in you, it won't bite you. And if it does bite you, uh, God will take the venom out of you, but, but people die. It's very intense. And that, obviously, I that's not how I grew up. I, there were no snakes. <laughs> <laughs> no. 
but the representation of a small community and the lead um, character, it's a young woman, um, her conflict, because her father is a pastor and she really believes in this stuff. That one is really beautifully done. And also it has Olivia Coleman in it and some other great actors. So I highly recommend that one because it, it caught the vibe. That was, that was my childhood minus the snakes. <laughs> <laughs> feel like that that could be a general across most people's childhood you're like it was a little bit off but not the snakes <laughs> yeah. I mean, my dad was, was a little weird and my family believed weird stuff we had weird neighbors no snakes though. <laughs> <laughs> um that one like that one's upsetting from moment one and just gets more and more and more upsetting but not in a creepy gory way in this kind of really grounded way in this really kind of heartbreaking way that really examines and this is where I what I love to see beliefs and especially for people who grew up in it when when you try to challenge that and how hard it is mm-hmm. for your brain if you were if you just born into something and you've always known it and not just people who grew up in cults can identify with that anyone who grew up in any kind of organized religion or whatever your parents believed or the people who raised you believed because almost always for people in close-knit communities even or even in you know religious practicing religious families to um, deny it or decide that it doesn't quite make sense or it's not what you believe is to lose your entire community and often your family. And that, that is um, well represented in that movie for sure. I'm in a discussion group for people who are raised in cults. And so I've had a lot of these conversations with uh, predominantly women who say who are still struggling? I asked someone someone recently, "What do you What do you still do that's culty, even though you're long out?" And actually, a lot of people had an, an answer for it. I have an answer for that, and I haven't been in a cult since I was eleven. I'm afraid of commercials. That's oh yeah, and I can understand why after <laughs> listening to your book. Like if I find myself, well, here's the thing. Uh, so for listeners who don't know what my story, I was just raised in an environment where commercials were 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 evil and like you would there was like a switch where you would turn off the commercials and it was a very stressful job. Mm. Um, but like really important because commercials had evil in them and like world people could get into your soul. Um, so as an adult, way out of that life, I will find myself like say I'm in like a bar that has a TV and the commercials on i will stare at a commercial like like a dummy and then be like oh, what am i doing and then i'm like oh, who cares and i'm like ah commercials wow yeah <laughs> because i ne- i never watched them as a kid and so like there was this sort of mystery fear around me it, yeah. now i'm just like commercials are so cool and then i'm like <laughs> oh there's so many layers i thought in in the mini series about waco there are two one is like Waco and one is Waco, the aftermath. And in the second one, I think that one is half dramatization and half actual interviews with people. What it did that so few representations of cults do is it humanized David Koresh and his followers. Yeah. Uh, to the point that brought me to tears. And it brought me to tears when it was happening. I didn't know much about it. And it was pre-internet. I think it was like 96 or something. But I was watching it unfold because it took like there was a standoff, you know, for like 50 days, 55 days, I think. And I was watching it and I was like, once they said ATF was coming, Janet Reno was coming. And I was like, 
oh no, don't you know? Of course, no one knows this because people in law enforcement aren't trained with, about cults. Yeah. Don't you know if you if you give an apocalyptic cult a showdown, it's a prophecy. Mm-hmm. Like it's you're, you. There's no way people are not going to die. People are going to be like, this is what he was talking about. I will sacrifice this, this, and this. And that's not even quite what happened to them. You know, it was kind of more complicated, and they kind of accidentally lit them all on fire. And it's a really tragic story. But I loved that it created empathy for, for them, even though like they, they did a lot of nutty things, like a lot of questionable things, but that doesn't mean everybody needs to die in an inferno. It means that people need to be saved and, you know, it needs to, they need to take away their guns or whatever. So I was very moved by that. Mm. I guess what I'm saying as I'm listening to myself is either ones that have empathy for the people instead of being about a person coming into it for the first time. It's like, what about like a person trying to get out of it for the first time? What about just like living with the people who are, are this is their lives. And so, and that's the same with them that follow. Like we're, we never see anyone outside of this community. We only see these people. Mm. And, and I'm like, why do we always need a, an in that's, you know, someone who's normal? Ultimately what I'm, I want people to feel is that it could be you. Mm-hmm given a certain set of circumstances in a time and place, it could be you. And I mean, especially if you were in your early 20s in the late 60s and early 70s, like I think everybody who thinks that a cult is above them should ask themselves, there were two things you could be at that time. You were either countercultural or you were the man. <laughs> and like, you know what I mean? And yes. so I'm pretty sure I would have been countercultural. And so given that, who knows what I would have encountered. And it was a time when, you know, safety was kind of, a, it was a whole different framework, right? So I would have been in any number of party vans and like ended up at Spawn Charlie Mon- Manson's ranch. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> It's kind of what happened to my mother, and here I am. When I was writing my film, Charlie Says, which is about the women uh, who killed for Manson, I would ask myself all the time, I'm like, wow, this could have happened to me as a person in a time and a place. And I feel like right now, there's so much instability is kind of like our, it's our brand now as a human race. It's a totally different vibe from 1968, but we are in a place that feels kind of really cult ready between governments and climate change and all the bullshit that's coming down from that. There's a desperate need or I I think urge to be like, can I just go create my own community? Can I, is there a way out of this? Is there a way to make sense of this? Is there a way to to not live with this anxiety every day? So I feel like right now we're a very cult ready culture. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. There's a book called The Storm Before the Calm, and it's about how we are um, live in cyclical times in terms of Uh, political shifts and then cultural shifts. And in this moment in time, we're at the intersection of both a cultural shift and a political shift, which creates massive turmoil. And it's, yeah, the book was like, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And I'm like, oh, yeah. We have to to be wiped out and start over. I guess so. (laughs) Dinosaur style, right? Like, this and it's not funny to people who have kids but i'm like i'm 55 and i don't have kids like when this <laughs> really goes down i'm gonna be dead i was really looking at the things that like after you said this idea of the humanization and i was looking at them through those lens like i was watching waco before we convened today and going oh yeah they really are looking at well how could this be like there's people who he even says, you had this house in Hawaii and this other job and now you're here. And even though the person isn't always happy with like the outcome, his 
fervent belief of this person to say like he just knows more than anything that anyone that I ever witnessed and just feeling like really real feelings and a real person and not being sensationalized, but everyone felt really real. Mm -hmm. Right. And that you don't need to give someone drugs or, you know, starve them or deprive them of sleep to have them just want, maybe need to believe in something and, and follow it. And that's a kind of person that I feel is kind of heartbreaking. Like people who are really open to beliefs and truth and new ways of living are the most vulnerable mm-hmm, people mm-hmm. to this, uh, these uh, abusive, coercive people. And that, that to me is heartbreaking. That's like those might as well be children. Yeah. You know, in terms of their openness and their vulnerability. I, I mean, it's so far from who I am because I, because of how I was raised. Like if anything even smacks a little bit of doctrine, I'm just like, nope, I call bullshit. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> I'm like, so I can't even put myself in the shoes of someone who would be susceptible to yeah. a cult because of their upbringing. Yes. But I, I, but I try to, to really keep that empathy because I know, because we all know people who are passionate about something, even even if it's a really like small thing that isn't a big spiritual thing, being passionate about stuff is what keeps us, what gets us out of bed in the morning, you know? I remember the thing that made me the most, I um, say, c- cynical about people's actions was when we were brought to a Baptist church and the kids who brought us got to spin a wheel and get a prize. And then I was like, bullshit. <laughs> if I'm coming here to be like, to, to come to this organization to talk about love and whatever, then but you are like coercing people with prizes, then I don't think this is a real deal. So, and I was probably 10. I was like, nope. Logic brain says, no, this is a bad <laughs> idea. And so have been as such since then. Which I appreciate in my sister because there's moments where I, like in my 20s, I was definitely a searcher. Now I know that I was dealing with generalized anxiety disorder, but as a young 20-year-old person, I just needed an answer to feel better. And so mm. I totally was could have fallen into paths and even did some like personal development courses that now I look back and I'm like, ooh, I'm glad I didn't continue down that path because it was kind of like Nexium style stuff. It wasn't Nexium, but but I remember having calls with Heather and her being like, Are you sure, Sarah? Like landmark? It was like it was a landmark style. It was called Choices, mm. the one that I was in. But yeah, it's like you're in a room full of people, you have these coaches who have no training in psychology whatsoever and you're burying your deepest darkest secrets and it was wild but at the time I was like yeah look everybody's so happy and my auntie did it and she's in such a good spot now and it was like it just kind of rippled through our family and this thing of oh bring somebody with you but don't tell them what happens because they need to do it on their own journey and so is the secretness this Red flags everywhere. <laughs> so many red flags. It was, I was terrible. Like, like, Heather, when you come, come. I was like, no. And she was very yeah, adamant about it. It's that love bombing aspect of it too. And just you make these new friends. But it was bizarre. I look back. I was put into a room. Like you go to a hotel and I was like roomed with some random person. Like it was just insane. So, I, anyway. A few years ago, a good friend of mine, he got invited by people he met at a conference or something to do a landmark thing and it was free and you know he spent the whole day there and he and he was like wow that was exhausting but it was really cool and he's like but they gave me this whole contract to sign to go to the next one I'm like you're going to another one he's like yeah I met these really cool people and then they said they would sponsor me and I was like okay I'm like let me see that it was like a, a contract signing away liability but there's just one part that says if you ever have suffered from anxiety depression had suicidal thoughts like 
you know, we're not responsible for triggering those things. And I was like, bro, you've had all these things. Like, <laughs> don't go. like I'm not even going to say the C word. Like, just don't go. And he was like, oh, all right. And he's like, I'm going to go. Do I need to say that it's a cult? Like, it's a cult, but it's like, it's like an MLM cult, yeah. you know, mixture. Cause like, because, you know, the first one's free and then someone's going to sponsor you. And then he's like, I cried in front of all these people. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> no, that is not a breakthrough. That is a breakdown. Yes. <laughs> I am watching the show Painkiller, which is about OxyContin and the, the rise of it. And, I just, I knew all this because I'd read about it, but seeing it, the way that his sort of stroke of genius was to create these pharmaceutical reps who were just these young, attractive women who were just motivated to sell, sell, sell. And they brought on, you know, new little protégés that then, you know, that created this whole sort of army of hotties, you know, who were just browbeating doctors into into prescribing more oxy. Uh, I was like, culty. Yeah. Super culty, but yeah. like money cult. Yeah, totally. Very different. Yeah. The idea of like future shows about cults, about, you know, really capturing the personal side of, of it. But is there anything else that you think that is kind of missing? I mean, obviously get rid of the, we don't need to have um, human sacrifice. Human sacrifice. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. So in my film, Charlie says my project was really to humanize, especially these three women, mans and girls. I'm putting that in air quotes for listeners. And you know, just sort of seen as one like woo woo, stupid girl, like murderer, fun, like cartoon character. So I was really in that movie trying to show the journey, yeah. trying to make the journey empathetic or to create empathy for the journey and make them individuals and not just interchangeable people, which they were all very different people. But what was funny is that I had in, written in the script tons of kids and scenes with kids because that's how I grew up. And that is often um, a hallmark of these kinds of groups because the way it's going to keep on is by making more of us. Yeah. And at some point we just had a big budget slash and we, they were like, we can't, we can't have all these kids. Can you, can you, you know, rewrite and write around it? I got so upset and I didn't really know why at first because I was like, kids, whatever, like the kids aren't the, the heart of the story. And I know kids are really hard to work with and expensive. And then I was like, oh, because it's me. Because yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's an erasure of like my experience yeah. and where I come from in this story, which was fine. But I do also, what I have not seen, and I'm I'm writing an adaptation of my own book, which has a lot of kids in a cult, is kids. Yeah. yeah people who are raised in in any of these kinds of groups how they deal what they really believe where those cracks start to show if if at all and what it means to not have chosen mm-hmm. a belief system mm-hmm. and because you're a kid as was the case with me not ever really have it explained to you mm-hmm. yeah i mean for people who grew up you know in in the sort of extreme forms of any religion and all of them have extreme forms that could be called could, could be considered cults at least there's a bible mm, yeah there's a book to read or, you know, or the Torah or the Quran or yeah, whatever yeah um but you know for a lot of it it's just like whatever gibberish comes out of some adult's mouth and I would love to see that represented it kind of I mean I, I guess my movie is going to kind of be like that because I don't because you don't ever I never we never I didn't realize until writing this book and having people ask me, what did this cult believe in that I don't really know? Yeah. yeah well, why would yeah. you at that age? I was a kid. They were just like, do what you're told and there's some weird shit to think about. Yeah. You know? No, exactly. I am curious since you did, you know, you were born into the Lyman family. 
what was your process of realizing that it was a cult? And then how did you ultimately, well, I know because I read your book, but how did you ultimately leave? That is two separate answers. So ultimately how I left was that my mother left with the man that she was with in the, in the middle of the night, escape style. And they sent me to live with her, uh, which I did not want to do because I, you know, was raised in, in a community where most people didn't live with their biological parents. So I didn't really know my mother very well. And my mother wasn't that cool. She didn't have much status. <laughs> And I, I kind of had more status than my mother through the people that I was friends with, et cetera. I'm a lot at this point, to be clear, but like it was extremely hierarchical and they did not take a genius to see where the power was. Mm-hmm. But I was forced to leave um, and was very, 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 very sad about that. Um, so I make a, a perhaps dark joke that can I really call myself a cult survivor if I beg to stay, mm-hmm. which I literally did. Yes, I can. I know I can, but it's just kind of funny to think about because people are like, how did you escape? But I'm like, uh, I begged to stay and they wouldn't let me. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> not the standard story. But that's um, all you knew. So it like makes sense. Like yeah. that, that was your family. Right. That's all you knew. Yeah. And then in terms of when I realized that it was a cult, so it completely erased it once I realized that it was just too crazy for most people. to. it just made me too weird. I was already so weird. You know, just from being like growing up this way, like the way I dressed, the music I knew, the way I made eye contact, the what, everything about me was so weird. It took a lot of like studying and like figuring out how to look normal and pass, basically. Uh, look at me now. Do I, do I look like someone who grew up in a cult? Um, <laughs> Would never guess it. <laughs> you've done very well. So all through high school, I just didn't talk about it. And then when I went to college all of a sudden it was, you know, the, who had the most fucked up childhood Olympics. Mm. And I was winning once I realized that, you know, cause I went to Sarah Lawrence where there's like rich kids who were like, you know, my therapist was fucking my mom. And I'm like, you had a therapist. And, you know what I mean? Like everybody was so sophisticated and so kind of like, I, I don't know, stole my mom's car and crashed it into blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm like, you know how to drive. Like, I don't know. It was just, <laughs> But then I had this story and it was, it was really, you know, it got a lot of traction. Um, But I was still calling it a commune. Mm. And that's not what we called it growing up. We just called it the communities. The the word cult was not, it was on my radar. I mean, but I thought Jim Jones was a cult. Right. Mm how that's any different from how I grew up. <laughs> more people and we didn't all die. And it wasn't in Guyana. So I finally at 22 uh, went to therapy for my, the first time. And I was just kind of giving her like my backstory on um, what I, how I grew up and she listened. And then she said, that's, that's not a commune. You're describing a cult. And I was literally in my head anyway, I was like, rude. That is so rude. Like, how dare you call the family I grew up in a cult? And she gave me this uh, newsletter from the cult awareness network and I read that and I was like, these people are so, they don't even know what they're talking about. They're just against any group of people who aren't living like, you know, like normal people do. But then I, she, she kept giving it to me and I kept reading it and I'm just like, oh, okay. Well, if a cult is, mm, 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 then um, that is what I grew up in. And so, but it took me till I was 22. So I had been out for 11 years to, to realize it was a cult. And even then I was like, Oh, that seems so mean. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, 
And even now, when I say that word, I know that some of them, some of my generation, some of the older generation are hearing me talk or doing, you know, and I'm sure pissing them off, you right. know? Uh, and I feel that all these years later, I feel that like, it doesn't feel right yet. It's like my child self is like, don't say that. Mm-hmm. Or my adult self is like, call it what it is, yeah, you yeah. know? Well, you, you mentioning your child self, like I found when in your book that there was like a, a fondness of living on the farm. That was something that I, I found in the the way that you were describing some of the chores you got to do and the things that you did living on the farm. And then there was this, was it called The List? God's List? Of movies. Lord's the list. Lord's List of films that you all had to watch. And I found it really interesting that then you are now a filmmaker. So I was curious, like, did some of that, um, ins- you know, lead to to the career you chose? I never thought about that until recently, until I went public with the idea that I was raised with this Lord's List. But probably, or it's chicken egg, because I I loved those movies. I loved the old movie stars. But it was more that I thought, you know, I want to be Catherine Hepburn. I want to be Lauren Bacall. Like, I want it more, I think, made me want to be an actor more than maybe want to be a filmmaker. It certainly, I loving those movies as a kid, I didn't really understand what a screenwriter was. I, th- I think I thought actors wrote movies. I don't know. Me too. It, <laughs> I think a lot of adult people still think that. Hi, there's a whole bunch of us schmoes so out here writing movies. <laughs> so I think it made me into a critic because similarly with the music that he issued, um, we had to write to him, him being the leader of the cult, we had to write to him what we thought and it had to be original and it had to, you know, and so it also, it just turned me, it, it trained my brain at a young age to have something to say about what I was absorbing. And I think despite a kind of spotty homeschooling education, that's a really good thing to train a young brain to mm-hmm. do. I mean, a bit much to wake us up in the middle of the night, a bit much to like have to write these letters every time, you know, a new, you know, music collection was, was issued because it was a lot of pressure. But it also turned me into a critical thinker mm. at nine. Yeah, now it's like your writing skills were, at nine. Really, yeah, at nine. <laughs> Analyzing a film at nine is just. I was watching the Care Bears, so it's very so different. There. A little different. It's very different. Yeah, we were watching, you know, to have and have not, and Casablanca, and all of Catherine Hepburn's movies, Jimmy Cagney movies, and everything Cary Grant is in, everything Betty Davis is in, like. That was my whole constellation. Those were my Care Bears. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Different Care Bears for sure. Although I remember recently how I learned to read because I don't remember it and I don't remember anything formal. And I, re- I remembered that we were allowed to watch Sesame Street. I feel like Sesame Street also raised me. Oh, I it also was, raised us. I was raised by, yeah, we were both raised by Sesame Street. So, wow, welcome. Welcome to the club. <laughs> Come on, everyone fund public television, please. <laughs> raised us. <laughs> And, and gave me like because they would do those segments that were partially in Spanish or teaching you you know a Spanish word. That it, yeah. it also kind of trained my young brain to think like, oh, there's more than one language to speak yeah. in. I mean, it's just it Sesame Street's amazing. Yes, yeah. you know, you talk about that you went to psychologist for the first time or therapist for the first time when you were 22. You know, when you started to realize, oh, maybe this is a cult. How was your recovery process then? Once you started to kind of name it for what it was, and then like, how did that have an impact on your mental health? Well, I hate therapy, and I'm very grateful to that woman, but I only lasted a few more sessions. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) 
And then, you know, every few years I'd be in a relationship where she would say, you know, not, not like a full on ultimatum, but a like, you need to be in therapy or it's going to be hard for me to be in a relationship with you. So sort of court mandated therapy. <laughs> and so I've tried over the years, but the hard thing is, and this makes me want to quit what I do and become a therapist who is sensitive to these issues. I have so much to explain Yes, before right. a therapist can, you know, kind of even wrap their head around how I grew up. And even when I have gotten there, I swear I wrote a book just so I could give it to a therapist mm-hmm. and be like, you read this, it'll save us both a lot of time. But anyway, when I have gotten there, people still don't understand this really basic fact. It's even hard for me to articulate, but the average therapist will always kind of target my relationship with my, with my mother mm. as a thing that needs healing. Mm. And I can't seem to impress upon anyone that if you're raised in a culture where that relationship doesn't matter that much, like, yes, she did me a lot of harm outside of that, but there's not a primal thing in me. And I don't think anyone wants to accept it, that it's possible right. that if you do not raise a child with their biological mother, that there will not be necessarily be a connection. Mm-hmm. Maybe people yeah. who are adopted who've met their birth parents are like, well, that's just a person. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's not like, we look alike in some ways, but it's not, that's not the person that like gives me those feelings. Yeah. And, um, and so that part is always hard too. Cause I'm like, I don't want to talk about my mother. Like it does, th- that is not the most important thing to, to recover from. I think the, the, to be honest, the thing that's helped me the most and has been the most healing is, is relatively recent, which is going to these discussion groups that are organized by the Lalich Center. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Yanya Lalich, but if you watch any cult, cult documentaries, you'll see her in every other one. Yeah. She, she, she's, she's like a, you know, cult expert. I put that in quotes just cause it's a weird thing to be. Um, <laughs> she's a lot more than that. She's a sociology professor and, you know, and an amazing person. And she has, has this place called the Lalich Center for Coercion and Control. And they have support groups and they have workshops for people, you know, I'm in the one that, where people are raised mm-hmm. like me and which was great because at first I was like, I don't want to be in a support group with a bunch of people who joined cults and got out of them. Like bless them as they say in the South, but like, those are the people that people like me are mad at, yeah. you know? Like, and so then, and I'm not, and of course, you know, but, but I, I know a lot of those people too, but it was such a relief to be like, I, I get to be in a group of people who, who come from exactly my space. Yes. And even though it's all everything from children of God to Scientology to things you've never heard of, like mine and, you know, you know, offshoots of Christian fundamentalism, Orthodox Judaism, the two by twos. Anyway, it's like a, you know, a constellation of different kinds of cults, but we have so much in common. Right. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. kind of crazy. Um, and so that has been incredible. Yeah. And that I, I, I was like, wow, I have looked, I have been looking for this for my whole adult life there's a whole baseline of understanding. And then it just, and it's a group, it's not one-on-one therapy and it, maybe it won't get me as far as one-on-one therapy would, but it's the first time that I feel moved. I feel healed. Mm. I feel like I can say things and I've learned so much. And one of the things I've learned that I didn't know is that for a lot of people who are raised in cults, that they, they're extra vulnerable and they go right into another one without realizing Mm. it. That is often in the form of a quote unquote life coach. Oh, yes. And how insidious is that to be a person who preys on people who are just like, okay, I was raised to not have any ideas of my own and to be given an exact plan of exactly how to go throughout my day. And so now you're just going to prey on that person and just, you know, manipulate them and control them. 
shaking my head. I'm right there uh, with you. When I came across the Lalich Center, I was like, we'll see. You. <laughs> this is another cult disguised as a cult recovery space. I'm going to be pissed, but it's really, really not. And it, I can't recommend it enough. And, you know, just the trust I have in Yanya and the people who work for her. Mm. I actually now lead a writing workshop for some of the women and the legacy of it is going to be so exciting. So the recovery journey is a really tricky one for people who've been in cult, cult, had cult experiences, whether, you know, joined as adults or born in because there's not a lot of training in, in the mental health space. For example, one woman that is in one of the groups with me, actually two of them said this, but the therapist said, you know, something like you need to, you know, keep a gratitude journal or you know, a dream journal or like write down, write, write something every day as part of your healing process. And in both of their cases, writing something every day to the leader right. of their, their cult mm-hmm. was part of the process. And so having to write something every day was very triggering for them, but they didn't quite know how to say that. And so I'm like, I'm like that should just be, that's number one, just check in with people yeah. about what the things they had when they're in their cult and, and make sure that you're not replicating it. You know what I mean? And that's like, so I, I mean, it really, sometimes I'm like, I'm just going to quit. I'm going to go to school. I'm going to become a therapist. I'm going to become a therapist who knows all this stuff. I'm going to heal everybody, but I'm busy. (laughs) (laughs) You got lots going on. In your opinion, what would you suggest people do if they suspect that someone they love is in a cult? I think the number one thing there, it's kind of like having an addict in your life is to not shut them out. Mm -hmm. To keep the, but especially for people in in a cult, because they're going to need it. If they're ever going to figure it out on their own, they're going to need someone to go to. And if you say, I can't, like you're in a cult and it's crazy and like you need to just get your shit together and buy, they're going to, it's just going to further push them in and make them feel like they have nowhere to go. So that's that's the number one thing I would say is just be present and be in touch. And there's kind of, I mean, that's the other thing about cults and the law that's really tricky is that, you know, if you're over 18, you're an adult and you can make your choices. And so that's another thing that Yanya's really working on. And a few people I know in the cult space is changing coercion laws and changing uh, law enforcement understanding of what that is, which domestic violence laws and especially law enforcement training has come really far with that. You know, just recognizing that if a woman, it's usually women, seems like if there a call was made, but then when you get there, the woman's like, no, everything's fine. Maybe it's not, right. you know, and, and, but in the case of coercion, it's in process. The coercion laws need to be connected with human trafficking laws, mm. like cult and coercion and, and that kind of manual labor can be considered human trafficking. And if it was, then we could actually use those laws to get people out of things and to make some of these things a crime. Because working for someone for free is not a crime, and, and you it's know it's screenwriting, it right? It's screenwriting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think that the most important thing is if someone you you know you think is in a cult is to just like well, like you were saying, even when Sarah was was doing this thing that you think is inadvisable, like you can't just be like, "Don't do that; it's stupid." And be like, "I'll be here." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's but it's hard because I think your inclination is to be like, what are you doing that's stupid? Don't mm-hmm. do that. I probably did say those words. I probably did. But you did. I did. I can't help myself. <laughs> I mean, I because at the time I'm just like, this seems odd, and I don't think this is a good idea. And it's a lot of money. Like 
Yeah, yeah, there's money too. I forgot. And so that. I just real I was and to me, like I'm very cheap. So I'm like, I would never do that anyway, because it's too much money. <laughs> but you're like, you're not acceptable for that reason. You're saying like, I'm too yeah, cheap. I'm like, no, very <laughs> cheap. So I'm like, I won't do that. But I think like you're right, like if like your friend, you gave that example of your friends like, I'm gonna sign this contract. But like you were you're like, maybe like look at the things in this, but like you're literally the kind of person who even they're admitting it maybe might not be able to handle this emotion. Yeah. And so I think, you know, being that support and also being like, just like be critical of this could be maybe approach like rather than shutting it down or shutting them down because, you know, people then sometimes double down then are like, well, if totally, you think yeah. that I can't do this, I'm going to do it and do it really good. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And that's the danger, especially if it's someone you love, especially if it's a sibling. Like for those of us who have siblings and I have many, I learned at an early age that my younger sisters, I had to be very careful what I told them to do or not do because just that I thought it was a bad idea would guarantee that they would do it. I had to really learn how to be like, okay, well, here's a little thought, but like no judges and, you know, and really kind of basically manipulate them into seeing things my way. For people who are cl- close to you, depending on the kind of person you are, like, I can just push them further in. Another thing I learned from my support dis- and discussion groups is that surprised me is that for a lot of people who are um, newly out of cults, the thing that g- got them there, the switch flipped, was a cult documentary. Mm. And especially during COVID, like COVID got a lot of people out of cults because they were suddenly not able to be kept super busy and have all this doctrine, uh, you know, in their ears all the time. Yeah. But then this one guy actually said he was watching Wild Wild Country mm-hmm. and was like, oh, I think I'm in a cult. And somebody else said the same thing about one of the Nexium documentaries. And I'm like out here reeling against all these cult documentaries as, you know, kind of exploitive and, you know, human misery for entertainment. And why are they true crime? It's a whole different thing. And then I'm like, oh, there's a small population of people who is actually saving their lives. And so to bring it back to your question if you think that someone you know is in a cult or getting sucked into a cult, show them a cult documentary. Mm. That's how I realized that Choices was cultish or or cult because I watched the Nexium docs and I was like, that looks like the rooms that I was in. And obviously I wasn't in it anymore, but it gave me that, oh, interesting. And that's when I got interested in learning more about cults because I saw how I almost was in something that could have been really detrimental to my life. Right, and could have gotten way darker than what what it seemed like, which is kind of a scam to get your money. And and you experience it yourself, Sarah. That that actually watching cult documentaries, if you, if if the person is getting sucked into something, and you still have access to let them watch something, it's really, I think, uh, eye opening. Mm-hmm. And it's great because Nexium looks like so many sort of corporate retreats, right? And 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 Wild Wild Country looks like um, I, I don't know where how they started, but. Some sort of yoga uh, thing or something like yeah, a, it was yoga. Yeah. a meditation yeah. retreat or something, right? Yeah. Yoga and meditation, I think, is is you know turning into this dangerous space. If, if it had, it maybe always has been. Um, just you know, if the word guru is in your life, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, maybe examine that. Yeah, you know exactly. And the and the life coach space. A couple of the things that have come out recently is the acting coach that turns into a life coach that turns into just like person who controls your life and you're working for them for free. Like I have a friend who, you know, like so many people moved to LA to be an actress when she was 19 or 20 
started working with this acting teacher who then sort of became a life coach. And then there was this kind of hierarchy. And then all of a sudden she's like, it's five years later. I had made no money. I had spent all my credit card money on like trips to India and I was working for her for free. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was an acting teacher. So I think, and that was a woman. And that's another thing that I think is really interesting that's happening is that women are really empowered now to be cult leaders too. Oh, oh dear. There's a lot of women doing this. Equal opportunity. <laughs> Everyone can be a cult leader. Don't feel safe just because it's not, it's a, it's a woman. Like, yeah. you know, they're, they're finding their evil powers too. <laughs> Before we wrap up, I'm just, I don't know. I have this question. Why do you think people are so obsessed with cults? It's a question that I write about and think about all the time. I think that it's hard for me to, you know, wrap my head around why people are so obsessed with cults because my experience of it has been so uh, intense, which is that I just stopped talking about it at some point because people are either weirded out or they're just like so curious that it's it's dehumanizing because of the way it's been represented in, in, in documentaries and in, in film and TV. It feels like the same way people watch true crime, which is like, well, my life may have these problems and have this fucked upness about it, but like, pfft, I'm not like those weirdos. Yeah. And it's just the extreme of that yeah. or like you know, all the true crime things about all the murders and blah, blah, blah. It's like, okay. So like my relationship isn't that great right now, but like nobody's thrown anyone down a staircase and then disposing of their body in the river, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I do think it's just that it's like the human uh, need to s- take solace in the suffering of others. And I think it has a lot to do with representation. And I think it has everything to do with Charles Manson because the like, people weren't even talking about that word cult, but it hadn't become something to be feared until Charles Manson and the way that the media ran with that and the way that people still talk about it, yeah. and the way that people still care about this thing that happened so long ago. I think it just it, like, it just went into our into our cultural understanding and we've never recovered also cults do really bad things yes <laughs> you know what i mean that's just the ones we know about this is what i want to see i want to see a documentary about a cult that's just fine and hasn't committed any crimes they're just interesting people living their lives because you know they exist yeah. it's just that like, we don't know about them because they didn't do anything bad and they're good at being keeping a private yeah. life you mm. know what i mean yeah. I mean, would anyone watch that? Or be like, what? They don't do anything creepy? Like, forget it. They're just like people living an alternative life that's really working and has been for decades. That's boring. <laughs> I'm like, no, it's not. That's fascinating. <laughs> but but it's also like you said, like, I think with that, but also with Jim Jones and this idea of like the drinking the Kool-Aid becomes something that like w- words enter our vocabulary that we don't link back to mm-hmm. something that actually was really that was a really horrible thing that happened because so many people died, but this obsession with cult, but also this idea of like these words just start to become part of our vernacular. We don't even realize we're actually talking about cults even on our day to day. I've become this person. It just happened to me a couple of weeks ago. I was in a group of people that I had just met and we were just having a casual conversation waiting for something. And two women in the course of a 15 minute conversation used drink the Kool-Aid in two di- totally different ways. And I, this is the kind of person I've become. I'm like, I just, I can't, I can't help but mention that, that, that the term drink the Kool-Aid refers to a time when 970 people committed suicide, 250 of which were children. And it was a huge human tragedy. And they were both like, really? Like they had no idea. Wow. One of them was like in her twenties. One was like in her thirties. They had no idea. The one woman said, Oh, I thought it was just like when you go to a party and like, everybody's drinking the, the Kool-Aid that has the same amount of, of 
you know, gin in it. So like everybody is on the same wavelength. Wow. It's like, no, mass, mass suicide, mass suicide. 973 people on the hill in Guyana. She was like, ah, and they were both. And then the other one said something else about what she thought it was. And they were both like, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, (laughs) I just feel it's my job to like point out to people how this kind of stuff just seeps into our society. There's a documentary out right now called How to Become a Cult Leader. Mm. I've watched a little bit of it. Yeah. I say nay unto thee. Uh, it is completely camp satire, how to become a cult leader. And it has like five or six episodes where it's a narrator who's like, you should do this. And then it's about, you know, heaven's gate, or you should do that. And it's about Jim Jones. And it's so glib and so like tongue in cheek. And it's narrated by Peter Dinklage, who I love. Mm. And I look at that and I'm like, no, this is the, this is actually, I can't believe it's coming out now. This is, this is a cartoonish example of how, how poorly cults and how unseriously cults can be taken. So I encourage everyone to be mad at that. Okay. I won't continue. <laughs> I don't know why people are obsessed with cults. I don't have a good answer. I wish I understood. And I wish I understood how to, for myself, be more than that. Yeah. I mean, I know I'm more than that, but I, but I, I feel like for a lot of people, that's what mm. I am. That is, again, it's just kind of like reductive. Yeah. Totally. I have this moment where I feel like I, I'm talking to someone and somebody told them. Mm. Like, there's a, I all of a sudden I see a look in their eye, like, I'm fascinating. I'm like, I'm not that fascinating. I mean, I, mean, I am, but like, somebody told you that I grew up in a cult and you're just like, waiting, waiting for you to. That. Yeah. Or they're obsessed with my film, American Psycho. Either way, they're just like, <laughs> waiting for me to shut up so they can ask me about shit. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Well, you've given us a wealth of information about cults and your your view and your world. Is there an, any other resources that you feel like people should investigate if they maybe are a cult survivor or know somebody who is? I highly recommend several uh, cult podcasts. Um, there are so many, and they're not all they're not all high quality. Uh, but as a connoisseur now, because I've been on so many of them, I recommend ones like. This one that's from this Australian woman called Let's Talk About Sex, S-E-C-T-S, which is a goofy ass pun. And I, I did tell her that I thought that, but she just, she's, she's just fairly insightful and knows a lot. And she has a different guest on every week. And I feel like for people who are recovering it, it it's, it's like people who are a little further along on the journey who can talk about, and, and I feel like there's a lot of that, you know, those, those podcasts, I think could be really helpful for people. Mm-hmm. And finding people like you, it's, that's my that's my church. Any last things that you feel like we might have missed that you want to say? I wish I grew up wearing white flowy robes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone wears white. I'm like so impractical. I mean, that's my, my point. You wore overalls, right? Like when I think of like, you know, the following and the path and like all these like dumb cult shows, that there's always just this like, there's a uniform that's like, ooh. And I'm like, I, we didn't have fancy sexy clothes like that. We were just really like hand me down overalls trying to like get through the, the mud, you know? <laughs> so it's not as yeah. as uh, ethereal as we all see on film intelligence. So that's something we can it's just It's just, yeah, it's not as fancy and organized when you have a lot of people living together, there's just a lot of drudgery. And that's another thing that I would love to see. I like made this joke the other day. I'm like trying to adapt my book and I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to make a movie. Like there's this famous Belgian movie called Jean Dielman where she, it's just this housewife, you know, for like almost two hours just doing her mundane tasks. 
And I was like, I'm going to give the people what they want. <laughs> I'm going to make a quote movie that's just me or the me as a kid doing laundry for 20 minutes on screen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> One very last question. Where can people find out more about you and your book and follow you online? I am most present uh, social media wise is Instagram. I'm working on TikTok, but that's only because I have a younger sister. <laughs> I have been on a lot of podcasts in the last couple months. All really different. All really interesting. Uh, this one has a totally different POV than the other ones I've been on. Some of them are two hours long. I did one with uh, Sarah and Nippy who come from Nexium. Like some of them are with people who have been in cults. Some of them are with like therapists who have podcasts. Like there's a whole lot of me talking out there if you're interested. We'll make sure people can find you for sure. Anyways, thank you so much for joining us today on Brains. It was a pleasure and thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you both. I'm so happy that um, Sarah is actually the person who heard Guinevere on another podcast and then said she must come on this podcast. <laughs> and I was like, you're never going to get her. <laughs> and then she just reached out and did. And, I, and I'm so grateful because I think this was a really good conversation, not just because, you know, deep diving to film and TV and like how we'd want better representation, but really just there's things about the experience of going through being born into a cult mm -hmm. and how different that is. And then the impact of that and like what you need, like even the, the conversation about, well, therapy is hard yeah. because they don't understand where I came from or the values that I was given. It's, yeah. it's just so fascinating. Or they make me do the things that I had to do in the cult to yeah. like help with my recovery. And that is like the opposite of what I need. I found one of your fascinating and not in a like, oh my God, tell me about how it's so weird that you're in a cult, but just like I liked how she talked about it in the, the podcast I listened to so that I immediately got her book. And it was a you, totally unique way of seeing into the life of somebody who grew up in a cult as a kid. And I thought her perspective of like the language we use now about things yeah. and how to like be mindful at like saying things like I drank the Kool-Aid came from an awful place. And of, often lots of things we we say in our lexicon is yeah. from places and, that are terrible and yeah. you don't know. And the connection of like, how much we've connected cults to true crime. Yes. Yes. And we've kind of lumped everything together and not really, again, like really seeing like, well, these are people and mm -hmm. we're like dehumanizing everyone. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, we often do that. And not thinking about like, I was, I'm working on a pitch for something true crime that's done in a way that's really talking about mental health, which, you know, I'm hope very hopeful that Yay. it's something I can't made. I have a brilliant producer and I wrote this opening scene and he's like, we just have to always remember that the people in the story have families and loved ones mm -hmm. and we have to be careful about how we portray them. And totally. I think a lot of times in these true crime stories and in these cult stories, we don't see the human there yeah. and it's almost, it's just for the sensationalism. And I'm 100%. like, I think we have to be more mindful of what we're putting out in the world. Yeah. Anything you want to highlight that's really exciting for you right now? Just excited that the writer's strike is over. Bah, bah, <laughs> Heather's Go been <laughs> tied to the desk, tip tap tapping, writing them yeah. stories. <laughs> yeah, it's been, I am very tired right now. And yes, I'm not treating my brain well, but I am going to get the things done because okay. the things are needed to be done right okay. now. Well, I'm excited just that it's fall and I've been getting to pull out my cozy fall sweaters and jackets and such a beautiful time of the year. So my daughter asked the other day, mom, what's your favorite season? I was like, I think it's fall. She's like, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> that's all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Anyway, 
So I'm going to wrap this up for us. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Brains. Brains is hosted and produced by Heather and Sarah Taylor and mixed and mastered by Tony Bao. Our theme song is by our little brother, Depish, and our graphics were created by Perpetual Notion. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us and tell your friends to tune in. You can reach us on all social platforms at Brains Podcast, spelled B-R-A-A-I-N-S podcast. You can also go to our website, brainspodcast.com, where you can contact us, subscribe, and find out a little bit more about who we are and what we do. Until next time, I'm your host, Sarah. And I'm your host, Heather. Bye! Bye. Ooh. Ooh.